welcome to Black Fashion History, the podcast that celebrates the contributions of Black people to the fashion industry. It's Black History, but make it fashion. And I'm your host, Taniqua Martin. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year and welcome to 2022. This is officially the first episode of Black Fashion History in the year of our Lord 2022. And I am so happy to be back on this mic. I missed you guys and I missed telling our stories, interviewing people, diving into some fashion history. So I can't wait to get back to it in today's episode. As always, I'm going to be dropping some black fashion history knowledge on y'all and sharing the story of somebody that you need to know. Today's spotlight is menswear designer Shaka King, also known as the King of Sheep. Shaka King has made a strong impression in the fashion industry since the 1990s. He's designed for countless athletes, artists, and so much more. He's been praised by both national and international press, including Fairchild Publications' Daily News Record, which was like the most sought-after fashion trade publication of its time. Also, the New York Times, Vibe Magazines, Essence, and E. There are just a few of the media outlets that have hailed Shaka King as a pioneer of the upscale urban chic style and, of course, dubbing him the King of Chic. We discuss his start in fashion, why he loves menswear, and, of course, the legacy that he's looking to leave behind. So let's get into it. So I know that you're obviously still very active as a designer today. But I believe you started in the 1990s. So can you walk me through a little bit how you got your start and, you know, your first menswear fashion business? I started, of course, as a kid creating clothing. And then I moved to New York to go to college. And I'm a graduate of Pratt Institute, fashion design major. And then for about a year, I just was trying to figure out how I was going to approach what I was doing simply because I had been going to meetings and meeting with all of these companies, but no one was hiring me. They were questioning me. Basically what they were doing was getting free consultations. (laughs) So one of my friends was like, we're going to just paint the whole place. We're going to put up posters all around New York asking the question, who is Shaka King? Kind of like a, what do you call it? Street, guerrilla street kind of, Virgin, like Keith Haring was doing. Mm -hmm. So eventually I started selling and so forth and so on. So in the early 90s, it was at the end of the 80s, it was the early 90s, and Daily News Record, which is DNR, the men's fashion newspaper, reached out to me for an interview. And then I said I was going to be showing during Fashion Week, which really was my first time showing. So that was, I guess, probably 1990 or 91, something like that. And that's when it all kicked off. So like I said, I started showing during Fashion Week to get the attention of the industry or more attention from the industry because I had been in a couple of magazines, my clothing rather, in a couple of interviews. So the start got in 1990 and I was working from my apartment in Brooklyn. Okay. What I needed to make. I want to rewind a little bit because you said a lot of things in that that brief synopsis that I want to touch on. 
So okay. first you said you graduated from Pratt. And so when you graduated, did you just go straight into designing for yourself or were your interviews to work for somebody else or were you kind of looking for investors or some like seed for your brand? It actually was, it was both of those in that I was willing to work for someone else Mm -hmm. to make the money as seed money for my brand. Okay. I was already selling, but mostly one-offs to a lot of people in the dance community. And a couple of artists and then some regular guys. Yes, a lot of people. I made one of my friends at that time. He was with, I believe, Joffrey Ballet. And uh, he had a benefit to go to. He wanted me to make him something. I did. I started getting more requests requests from the principals that were dancing. And then that kind of just rolled into other people reaching out and so forth and so on. And then I kind of then I started going to like local boutiques in New York to see if they would carry my stuff. Because I still had my whole graduation, senior graduation collection. So that's mm-hmm. what I was showing. And one boutique actually in Soho bought several of the pieces. So then, like I said, I wanted to really get on the industry's radar by showing during Fashion Week. So again, a lot of the interviews were potential jobs coming in as a consultant to the brand or a ghost designer for a brand. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, and I needed the money to promote my own business. Because that's what it was always about, making the money to put into my business. And I was a makeup artist for a very long time. So I was and making good money. So I was saving it to also put into my brand. Okay. That's interesting that you kind of had that thought because I've spoken to like a lot of designers who start out different ways, but generally everyone's thought is that when they graduate from fashion school, they're going to go work for somebody else. They never think they're going to start their own brand until working for somebody else doesn't work out. For me, it was I read enough about European designers, London in particular, where a lot of designers worked from home. And when that kind of stuck with me, I said, you know what? I can't actually do that. And why not? I mean, I lived in Brooklyn. The fashion industry wasn't trying to come to Brooklyn. You needed to be on 7th Avenue. Just all of that foolishness. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't financially feasible. And I did have a customer base. So I was just like, no, I'm going to just do it myself. And you know what really helped? Intern for a group of some designers they were a team kevin and robert and they designed leather and i met a couple of celebrities working for them and they were working out of their loft in the village so mm-hmm. i was like yeah i could do this i mean my place isn't that big but it was big for a brooklyn apartment and i just converted the living room into my whole design studio so they came in they didn't get to see the apartment because you wrapped around and walked into the formal living room. The living room was nice with huge columns. So I had one area like a showroom and the other area was my design studio. And they did come. I got a lot of press. I mean, major press. And they would come to my apartment in Brooklyn. How did you manage that? How did you manage getting all that press? Reaching out to them with a press kit And I just think they were impressed that I was a black man that they didn't know on any level. And here I was successful. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of curious, you know, because, I mean, things have changed a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're black. mm, We got to question all of that. Always this kind of strange way of being condescension all the time. But they think that's nothing. Yeah. I don't know if I answered the question. (laughs) No, you did. Did you find a lot of that, like the fact that you are a black man in this industry kind of did it hinder you more than it helped you? 
Well, it didn't stop me. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother me. I grew up in Miami. I was accustomed to other people and their racism and all of it, you know, the unnecessariness every time you walked in some place. Are you in the right place? One story, actually, I was working with, they were producing, uh, I was working for, I'm not going to say the name of the company, but they were producing my men's blazers. And uh, I left one day and got home and they gave me a call and asked me did I have their keys. And I'm like, your keys? Where were they? Like, how could I possibly have them? Um, I had stepped into the office for half a second to talk with them at the door, never made it to his desk. The keys were on his desk. Of course, I was on the other end of the phone, just fuming, like, are you really serious right now? And that was because I was a black man, the only black person that had walked in there that day. So clearly, I needed to be called because I picked up their keys. And I was like, no, but uh, your brother was sitting at the desk. Maybe he stole them. <laughs> I'm the one saying steal. I said, but if I pick them up and have them in my pocket, clearly I know that. And what am I supposed to do? Come back late at night, I guess, and break in there? Oh, but don't be like that. And then, anyway, that relationship ended after about another year. I can year. imagine. Because <laughs> as much money as I was giving them, I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess my six or $7,000 mean nothing because I'm not a $600,000 client. I know for me, $6,000 pays for some stuff. So. I didn't care. I found another production company and went with them and stayed with them. I what recently just went back to them like a couple of weeks ago when I went to New York. I talked with them about doing production again because the website is starting to take off. So I need help. So let's take it back to your first time showing at Fashion Week. What was that feeling? If you could describe or and remember all of the things you were feeling in your your mind at the time. But what was it like? You know, you're so wrapped up with getting the show produced and ready to present it. Working in the process a couple of times, I did feel alone because it's a big undertaking. And my friends, really, none of them dress. I mean, none of them are in fashion. They dress well, but they just weren't in fashion. So a lot of the things, the little small things was missed by them. So they didn't really understand, you know why I was feeling the way I was feeling. But ultimately, everything was great. It's after the show. When the show is over with and you're done with all of that, then there's a sense of accomplishment as well as lost. Mm, because you're, you're done with that project. So now you're like, what do I do? Which, of course, what you do is just get back to work. But you ride like a high the whole time. And for me, anyway. And then... It's over with, and so you don't have that same speed and urgency and contacting people on a regular basis, I mean, daily or whatever. So, but then after that, you just get, I mean, then you just um, was happy with it because it was successful, and the press loved it. I mean, they loved it. So. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up was the reception. The response has always been good from the industry press. Once I got on the radar, they would contact me for my opinion about certain things. Then I started dressing a lot of basketball players and football players. And of course they were all over that because that's the one thing they recognize when it comes to people of color is sport. <laughs> so if I'm dressing sports figures and of course I know them, so then can I give them some information and so forth and so on, which I really don't, didn't want to always talk about who the actual client was just to maintain, you know, some privacy because they're private people. So Yeah. How did you get your first celebrity client? They saw my first celebrity client was Will Downing, the singer. And he saw a coat in Ebony Man magazine. It was one of the editorial spreads 
and I had fashion in it. And he contacted them on the back and wanted to get the coat. The coat was sold out, but I still had other styles similar to it. And his response was simply, I don't care. I just want something like that. And then he was a regular customer. I could have gotten some of the customers that I, sports players that I was dressing, but I always went through an agent, if you will, or a company that was basically asking me to produce clothes in their sizes. So I didn't feel comfortable, you know, poaching them or even mm-hmm. some of them contacted me directly. And I still would send them through the original contact until, you know, we moved beyond that. Or some of the other friends called me directly and had never contacted one of the like dressers or stylists that were dressing them. And then I could take them on as a customer I mean, as a client. So it based on, I know you're giving like a high level overview of just your career accomplishments and your journey, but it sounds like, you know, for the most part, you've had great success and everything had been moving in a positive direction. But I'm sure there are some challenges along the way. What, oh, yeah. <laughs> what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced as you were, you know, starting up and getting your name out there in the industry and building up yourself and your brand? Money for advertising. Mm-hmm. Money was always hard to get. And it was a lot of challenges. It's just that I, the way I was raised, you know, they're going to be problems and drama from certain people. And either you let that stop you or you move on, swallow it and move on. Our ancestors had to keep it moving regardless of all of the evilness and badness that came their way. So I didn't take it personal. They weren't my friends. This was business. If you didn't want my money, then there were, there were several other places you could go to purchase the things you need. So that's what I would do. And then sometimes I would really sit there and spar with them simply because I knew I wasn't coming back. So I want to be that black person in your face, pretty much cussing you completely out so that you understand, no, we all just don't sit there and take it. And if you don't need my money, you don't need it. And you will probably see me again. And then I was on the cover of DNR at least three times. So not my first, yeah, my first show got a whole column and the reporter was very impressed, and she also was trying to figure out how was I this creative, because it seemed like it wasn't a huge team team as they know it. So there were challenges with just timing, production issues, friends in your ear the whole time, and you just need them to leave you alone, basically not respecting what you're doing. There's many nights of crying, okay, all the time, simply because it was stressful. But one thing I kept going forward, though, I didn't let any of it freeze me or stop me. That was all the basic challenges, shipping issues, delivery issues, having to go down to FedEx and find your packages. I had a real big issue one time. UPS claimed they came to my home. I sat in the window all day because the buzzer wasn't working. I couldn't miss the delivery <laughs> because I was doing the big thing for Playboy magazine. And... What were you doing for Playboy magazine? They don't wear clothes. No, well, Playboy gave out an award with DMR for men's designers. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, when they stepped to me, it was sort of like that. But they were the sponsors. So, yes, as well as a naked book. They did (laughs) have this whole fashion competition. And it had been going on years before I had got on board. when they And they asked me to participate. Hmm. So, we they had a showcase. And I was one of the designers in the showcase. And it was tied in with, uh, like I said, DNR. One of them meant something or another. And it was a show. It was just a simple showcase, but it was great to be in that company. And it was a big, you know, to do. 
but there's all kinds of things, photography issues, you know, <laughs> models. Well, I'm not going to be so, I'm not going to really say models because actually in New York, you can always find models. And I used to select guys off the street because hmm. there was a certain look. And if they were willing to do it, then I wanted them to be in the show because they had a certain look I wanted. And I did other things too, you know, because there was always these conversations about you have so many black models and all of the basic stereotypes they could think of. You know, you're dressed in the ball players and do you listen to rap music? What no shit, just asked me straight up, what's my favorite rap song? And I looked her straight in the face and said, Rap? I don't listen to rap, but you know, I do hear it sometimes. My nieces and nephew play it. Hum a few balls of a song, I might know what you are humming. Like I put it back in her lap. Since you <laughs> since you talking about rap music, I guess you know about it. You sing the song and say the words and maybe I'll know. She just looked at me all crazy. In the interview and she was done. She asked a couple of those same kind of questions. But did you feel pigeonholed at all? Because you talk about, you know, people making comments about using so many black models or you're dressing no. ball players and all that. No, no. The designers I saw always use people that look just like them around and they were inundated. Exactly. So I had no problems with it. I wouldn't, my first question was, what's the big deal? Donna, Ralph, Calvin, they all only use white models, hairdressers, da 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 da, da or mostly that. So... Why would that be a question for me? Are you asking all the designers this question or just the black ones? Then when you start making them feel a little shame, they switch up a little bit. No, but that's true. Some And then some of them don't. Some of them are just because when you're a racist, you're a racist. So mm-hmm. now you can feel the energy. I'm sorry. They try to think we're dreaming, but we're not dreaming. And we know we're not dreaming. That's just part of the game. Make you think you don't see what you see or you're not hearing what you're hearing. But I mean, so race was the biggest issue the entire time. I mean, the entire time it was the biggest issue. Production houses, you know, they have issue about this, that, and the third. So what I would do, fabric places, trim places, anything I needed, product or any type of product to finish what I was creating, if they had a problem with me writing them a check, I would write them a check and leave the product there until the check clears, and then you ship me my stuff. Mm -hmm. Then it changed with a couple of my vendors because... They actually saw my name attached to the Playboy thing. That's what it was. The guy in one of the fabric places said, I saw your name on TV yesterday. And I was like, really? You're a fashion designer. And I'm looking at him like, fool, yeah, I've been coming here for two years. And I told you I was a fashion designer. What do you think? But I just smiled and said, oh, yeah. Da, 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 da. So then I said, so then I took my chance and said, when would I be able to get terms? Oh, you can have 60 days just like that because he saw my name attached to Playboy. So. They gave me terms and they actually gave me 90 days because most of them, if they were really nervous or, you know, assuming you were a thief, they would only offer you 30 days mm-hmm. taking a chance on a really small purchase. But again, like I said, I handled that by just letting them keep the check, let it clear, and then you send me my merchandise. Have you seen any change in the industry since, you know, your some of your earlier days when it comes to race and all of that stuff? On on the real, not with certain people, but what happened, you had more people of color entering the wholesaling business and the production business, and you had Asians and you had Latin. So it was just a bunch of other people to go to because I hate giving my money to you anyway if you're a racist. So mm-hmm. it was now, 
You know, if you sit there and talk with them long enough, you really realize inside they haven't changed. It's just outside they're trying to appear to change because they really want all the money. Once the money starts dwelling it down, then they come to anybody and try to get your money. So at some point, yeah, no, I'm kind of <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, a yes and no. For me personally, it's yes because the people I have a relationship, the relationship has gotten better over the years. But I think that's due because they realize who I am and how I am. And so as a person, they trust me to, you know, for the most part. But in a big way, no, it's always still when you walk in, are you in the right place? How can I help you? Even when some people come, I was just at my uh, jobber and a woman came in and she looked over at me and she said, I've never seen you here before because her assumption was that I worked there. Mm. And I said, mm, never seen you either. <laughs> and went on about my business. And then she looked down because I was taking my shoe, my sneakers off. And, you know, she looked down and I said, mm -hmm. so long story short, at some point she said something. I said, I do not work here, miss. And I don't know why you would assume that because I don't think you work here. So she looked at me like, I did you talk to me? And I looked at her like, I did you talk to me like that? And at some point the owners came in and their reaction to me just had a whole face drop. Because they came, because she called them. Mm. It was there. I had been there two hours and just bought like tons of stuff. And I hadn't seen them in years, especially since COVID. So they came in, chaka, chaka, da, 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 and walked right past her. And you just should have, it was priceless. I would have pulled up my camera and took a picture, except she would have said, I didn't actually be photographed or something <laughs> like that, you know, going to carry mode. So she was done. Like, well, who is he? He's that important. Again, that's that whole so-called undercover racist attitude. Yeah. And I know we like to believe the industry has changed because nowadays, you know, we have all this, like all these movements towards diversity. Every day there's a new panel talking about how to be more diverse in fashion and all that. And I just wonder if on the back end, when we look, when we think about production and everything else that is involved with the industry outside of the face of it, has it really changed? No, not a lot. You just have more people of color in the industry, and that's the only change in the sense that more people will hire you, more people will work with you mm -hmm. because they feel a kinship or some kind of draw. Like They're not the same way. But if you're talking about the whites that are in the business, for a lot of them, nothing has really changed, especially if you're talking about at the upper echelon hierarchy within the industry, the head of their businesses and so forth and so on. They're still just as dismissive as ever and just as condescending and stereotypically talking as ever. So, you know, you just have to ignore it because if not, you'll never get anywhere. Not if yeah. you're black or brown. Yeah. You'll just be like, they'll figure, yeah, see, told you something wrong with them. That's why, you know, they come with you with an attitude. And you could be a whole other person. You may not even be the type that is argumentative or want to be combative, but they will draw that out of you because they are sly with what they do and they think it's okay. And sometimes you have to check them and tell them it's not okay. Like they said, I am a man. Okay, so don't be <laughs> acting like I'm some little boy that you can tell to come do this, that, and the third. That doesn't work. I come in your business to with respect. And I truly expect the exact same thing. Agreed. So you've clearly had a full career and still are having a full career. If you had to choose 
like the top three most impactful moments of your career, what would those be? Well, definitely all of the covers I've received from the magazines, but I would say the DNR coverage was just a highlight because there was nobody else getting it that was black anyway, or doing menswear also. The cover vibe, that was a big accomplishment because it was in vogue. And I was shocked. I didn't even expect it. They just put them in the men's shirts and put them on the mm-hmm. cover. Vibe, all of the mistress. And Cindy, I think she was pregnant at the time. And they put her in one, too. And I think all the girls are around her. That was great. Celebrity-wise, I don't know. It's just being invited to certain events. The showcases were always great. Showing the collections were always a highlight because I ended up getting a good audience in attendance. I was able to get press people. I was able to get celebrities. And, you know, you sit back and realize who shows up. One time, Jermaine Jackson came to a show. And Josh Redman was there. And a bunch of other jazz musicians and a couple of actors. And I was just like, wow. But they had heard or they were in town and somebody had said, I'm going to the show. Come go with me. And then they're coming in and Jermaine Jackson actually wanted to buy a product. Like he wanted to buy things he saw on the runway. At that time, I was also, oh, my shoe collection I did for Hush Puppies. That was a major accomplishment. That was a major feat. I really did enjoy that. They didn't know what to do with the product. The older <laughs> salesmen didn't know how to sell the product. But I got the press. I got the money. I got the accolades. <laughs> I was happy. That was a big, that was a big thing. Hush Puppies. And I kind of draw a blank on some of the others. I would have to look through my books. Simply because every time something happened, that was great. But I couldn't stop there because right. I'm, still, I'm still going towards a goal to me that I've yet to reach. And I am very thankful for all the blessings I have received so far. But I still haven't gotten to where inside I go, yeah, now I'm here. You know, it's just. So what would make you feel that way? Smoother production chain. Okay. And, yeah, smoother production chain would do it and being able to hire people to really push the brand forward. You know, that would definitely be something that would make it a lot more fun. (laughs) How are you documenting your history? So I know that you've had all these accomplishments. You have all these magazine covers and everything. And I find sometimes, especially for my show, as I'm researching Black designers or other Black people in fashion, the information out there on them is limited. And so I want to know how can we still know who Shaka King is and all the great work that he's done throughout the years? How are you preserving that history? Well, preserving it, I just have, I have the tear sheets and the covers. And back then it was VHS, not CDs. (laughs) So I have the tapes from various shows and CNN and all these people who covered me. And I have a lot of the material that I use, like posters we created, invites to shows, run of shows. I was just looking at some of that stuff like, well, I can't throw it away. you know. No, then, please don't. No, but then you got to keep it stored. Now, clothing is a lot harder to preserve mm-hmm. because you have to keep it in a certain kind of facility. And sometimes you just can't deal with the fees all the time to keep it in storage. So, And I have really been blessed with having a full sale through most of the times when I produce stuff. So the most way you're going to see them is in film. I have tons of 35 millimeter slide film from photo shoots, which I am now trying to convert so that I could post those things, you know, because now everybody just thinks 
your careers, what they see on social media. And like there was nothing before that. Right. Like I, I would, I use the hashtag before social media sometimes when I post certain things, because prior to that, you know, you had to eat in the, in the press on page six or some kind of, you know, fashion spread, something like that in order for people to start talking about you and, you know, just getting cold calls. So I'm on social media and that's pretty much it. I mean, because I can't afford to take out big ads on anything. I mean, I take out sometimes ad at local pub magazines or newspapers, rather. When I had my shop, I had a shop in D.C. for nine years. So I would always do a couple of the newspapers and like a weekly or like a penny saver type of thing just to promote that I was there, which worked. Mm-hmm. It got people into the shop and telling other people and all of that. So I kept that open for almost 10 years and then I closed it to do something else. Plus the climate financially in the world had changed and a lot of people were losing their jobs and men were the only providers now. So clothing was sort of like on their back list of things to purchase. And then I wanted to try to teach other artists or designers in the business. So I started doing that. I did that for a little while. I went and moved to Miami to teach and that didn't really work. And I moved to Atlanta for five years because all my friends were like, oh, you'll do well here. Come here, come here, come here. And then an opportunity back in D.C. came up for me to run the D.C. Fashion Incubator, and I took it. And I ran that for three years, and I contracted, ended after the fifth year, and then we stopped that. And right before that, like a year or so before that, I was like, you know what, let me just keep focusing on my business case. Anything change, I always still have my designer label available to me. So then I did. I just started uh, creating more product in between working full time and servicing my customers with pop-ups at least once or twice a year. And just because it's about moving merchandise for me more than anything. They, if they don't know me, so long as they buy buying from me, I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, because I see how celebrity can be. And, you know, it can be okay sometimes, but then it just becomes like an albatross around your neck, you know? If you really just start clout chasing, then that's what you spend more time doing. And it doesn't go into the product and it doesn't go into the research and the various things that you use to create, you know, your art with. You just kind of get caught on trying to get likes and be seen and get people to to take pictures with you, you know? But does it always turn into finance? I mean, a financial gain? I have no idea. Because it's just not the way I do it. But social media is the only way I can say relevant at this moment. And with all of the algorithm issues, that has just went from, it was really great, and then it just kept slowing down. Actually, one day I was actually working on a shoot, and we were posting while we were shooting and getting gazillion likes and views and so forth and so on. And by, we started around 10, but around 3 o'clock, all of a sudden, the male mom was like, wait a minute, what happened? We was getting all these likes and stuff, and now nothing we don't see that on your page. And it just like stopped out of nowhere. And then from there, it became a much slower drip. Now mm-hmm. it's just been crazy. This past two months, it's just been like, no one sees your stuff. And I kind of have an idea of why, because, you know, they're trying to force you to take out ads and all those things. But I've done mm-hmm. that too. The last time I did it, it was nothing but a bunch of bots. Because you go to their pages and everybody page looked exactly the same. Two pictures. All of them in these crazy filters were full of cats or full of dogs. And I was like, these aren't real people. And I would send them messages to say stuff. And they sometimes wouldn't respond depending on what I asked because I guess they maybe confused the bot. 
So I realized it was some bull crap. And I was like, okay, so we're just giving y'all money for what reason? And then everything slowed down to just almost a drop. I mean, to, almost to a standstill. But it's okay. So what's next for you? Um, next where- for me is definitely beefing up my e-commerce side of the business because that's where all the energy is. A lot of people just sit, you know, touch mm-hmm. the screen and order. And then with COVID now, people don't come around as much and I don't want people around as much. <laughs> so, yeah, no, because I'm not trying to get anything either I don't have. So Very true. that's pretty much it. Just social media until I can. Oh, and then participating in events and doing interviews like this and magazines reaching out, you know, to get images because they want to do it like a little blurb on me or something like that. That's what I'm doing now mm-hmm. to get it out. I mean, you know, get the, you know people to be visible. And for my last questions, I like to ask everyone, you know, what is the legacy that you're hoping to leave? You know, I don't know if I think of it that way okay. because I never thought about leaving a legacy. I figured it'll be left simply because I act in a certain way. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. A lot of things I won't do. So I don't be seen as that person and not for them to see. It's just that's not the way I do things. And I think my body of work over time, if whenever it get or if it ever gets discovered, would speak for itself. So then the legacy would just already be there for you to see. But to say, no, I don't want to leave this legacy. I hadn't approached it that way. Thus far, what I've done is just simply chasing my dream. And if it does leave a legacy, which it should then that's great. Now, whether anybody buys into it down the line, that's a whole other thing. (laughs) You know, like you look at Alexander McQueen. I love his work, you Mm -hmm. know. So he ended up committing suicide because of the pressures of the industry and for whatever other reasons. But he has a body of work that speaks for him. And that's his legacy. Now, was he purposely going out to do that? I couldn't say. But I know if you have financial backing and you can put, and you can, take your fantasies and put them out for everyone to see and you got the finances to do that, then you're always going to leave a legacy like the Chanel shows or like uh, Alexander McQueen shows exhibit. Like those type of things are the legacy itself. It's the body of the work, but you have to have some kind of system to help you get it out because it's impossible really to do it all by yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, so very, very successfully. You need some help. And how do you get help? Now you can't even find decent interns. Everybody wants to be paid, whether they know the business or not. And I find a lot of designers, young designers coming out of college don't have a clue of what's going on. They just have a degree. They don't know fabrications. You know, I'm telling them, hand me chiffon, hand me the Georgette, hand me the silk file. And they don't, what's silk file? Like, how do I know it's silk? And I'm like, you didn't learn this already? Because of course we learned all fabrics when I was in college. You know, at the end of the day, I think what I do is if it's available in print or in product, then that would be the legacy. Okay. I get that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really enjoy like scratching the surface of your story. I feel like there's so much there. You should write a book or something. (laughs) You know, somebody else has said that. And, you know, maybe I really, really should look into that. But I I remember actually thinking, who's going to want to read a book for somebody they don't know about. I'll read it. <laughs> I know I'm just but one you know person. But... Because there is a lot of things. And I kept journals 
And I just moved into a new place right when COVID hit, right before COVID hit. I mean, literally like two weeks before it was hitting. And I have started reading the journals. So it's a lot of information that's there that I even forgot. But once I started reading it, I totally came back like the whole day or event or whatever. So maybe. Yes, maybe. write the book. I'll buy it. You'll have I'll at least one. You would sell at least one. Okay, well, that'll work. <laughs> And that's it, guys. Thanks again for tuning into another episode of Black Fashion History. If you loved what you heard, and I know you did, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcasting platforms and on all social media at Black Fashion History Podcast. Don't forget to visit us online at our website, blackfashionhistory.com. And of course, if you don't do any of that stuff, Make sure to tune in again next week for another Black Fashion History installment. Bye-bye.